Greetings. We're thrilled you've returned to the Black and Grim Podcast, an original horror fiction performance. Come in. Come in. I am Mr. Black, narrator and host of our beloved podcast. Tonight, it is my dark pleasure to share another chapter for season one. I think Grimm has outdone himself with this little glimpse into Danny's misfortunes. Tonight, our heroes venture into Hopland's Cove to see what rests behind the barricade. What will happen? Now, gather close, and I shall share with you episode 9 of Danny's River. It occurred to me that I hadn't heard the ghostly voices since the car crash. This peculiar thought filtered through the panic as I followed my friends around the macabre roadblock into Hopland's Cove. Not that they had been particularly helpful prior to that. The ghosts, not my friends. But honestly, I found a perverse comfort in their presence and an uncomfortable emptiness from their absence. Funny how we grow accustomed to strange wonders. Curious how we start to accept realities the rational world readily dismisses. Take the amulet, for instance. A lifetime ago, I wouldn't have considered its pulses were anything more than my overly taxed imagination. I'd have scoffed at Kara's mom and tossed the thing somewhere in my room and forgotten it. And you know what? Todd wasn't wholly responsible for this shift in perspective. My mother's voice drove me from the bar that first night. Alternating between mom and dad's voice, the ghostly pleading manifested, seemingly at random, until the car crash where they took form. And then, no more. Had the amulet, which I held tightly in one fist, blocked their cries from my mind? Or had they expended their final energies to protect Kara and me? More questions, with answers I wasn't certain existed. The unknown piled higher, the horrors mounted. Through all, I held the wooden amulet, ignoring its thick cord dangling between my fingers. Do you hear that? Kara whispered pausing a few paces ahead. She craned her neck, thrusting her ear upward to listen for something I couldn't quite make out. When none of us answered, she said, Water, there's a river or creek nearby. Don't you hear it? I didn't hear anything beyond my own blood pumping in my ears. Nope. Scott's head swiveled around. Miranda's service pistol the one she had given him after revealing her wounds, wavered in his hands as he looked around. Though I was in back, behind all three of my companions, I noted the distress etched across his features. Same. In fact, I didn't even hear the telltale sounds of nature. No crickets chirping. No nocturnal predator mewling. 
just the quiet swish swishing of trees. In fact, it seemed too silent. It's not that late. Where are the? Before I could finish, Miranda spoke up. Be quiet. This is not a good place. We stopped moving. Those sharp branches jutted towards us, and attempted to crowd into one another. There's an old adage: safety in numbers. Despite there only being four of us, I think we all found comfort in each other's presence. Speaking for myself, gratitude abounded, and I couldn't thank them enough, especially considering the horrors we had all been subjected to. A ghoulish pallor affixed Miranda's sharp face. Pressing a palm against her wound, she winced. The pain rippled through her body, causing her features to contort with a skeletal ugliness. Though no street light illuminated our way, and the stars cowered behind dense treetops, glistening liquid tinged her pale flesh when she readjusted her fingers. Are you all right? I reached towards her with my free hand, meaning to console, comfort, or ah, hell, I don't know. A wan smile replaced the grimace she had been trying to hide, but Miranda backed away so my fingertips only grazed her sleeve. I am fine, Daniel. We must keep moving. But didn't you hear the water? Kara asked, holding her arms tightly in a childlike hugging motion. We did not. As our artist friends started to protest, Miranda held up a hand to assuage her. Your ears might be more keen than ours. Do not grow angry because we have not heard what you have. She locked gazes with each of us in turn before pivoting, almost sluggishly, to motion Scott onward. I trudged several half-hearted steps, straining to hear anything beyond our labored breathing. When a particularly sharp branch scraped my bare arm, yelping, I stumbled backwards and nearly tumbled to the curiously dry earth beneath our feet. Viscous black welled up along the finger-length abrasion, and pained tears scoured my cheeks. When Scott started towards me, I waved him off, and dropping the wooden amulet in my pocket, slid my thumb over the wound. Mostly dry by this point, I still fear infection, especially since I didn't have a fresh napkin to clean the blood. Close inspection of the offending branch revealed an offshoot surprisingly reminiscent of a gnarled hand, fingers curled, reaching towards me. An unsolicited shiver bore through me as I moved away from the limb. We hadn't even made it into Hopkins Cove, and I was already freaked out. But as I nursed my arm, which surprisingly hurt like hell, the path emptied out into—well, it emptied out into the place we had driven a long way to find. In his letter to me, the murderer implied my mother came from an area of some report, if she was the nurse in his wacko story. A local hospital, boarding house, coffee shop. Todd indicated a place that, while potentially backwoods as fuck, might have at least one halfway decent restaurant, maybe even a library or post office. In the letter to my mother, and via conversation with Kara's mother during my trip to the hospital, 
I found breadcrumbs hinting towards less respectable locales. Nothing prepared me for the true Hoplin's Cove. How should I describe it? A few dangerously sagging buildings plunged from the wild shoulder-high grass and dotted the scene in a vaguely symmetrical manner that might suggest a road. Several dilapidated structures of varying sizes fanned out to our right. On one, I managed to barely make out a heavily rusted sign identifying it as a diner. No glass filled its windows, no door hung from its hinges. As we moved closer, stepping on malleable earth instead of asphalt, I saw only an empty, nature-assaulted shell. Grime and nature consume most other buildings, so they barely resembled their former selves. I doubted the town had ever been particularly large, but this... this didn't compute. Look up there. Scott pointed towards a brick structure, roughly a hundred yards ahead of us. The path we stood on directly led to it. What do you want to bet that what we're here for isn't there? As one, we shifted our attention to the building. It appeared less afflicted by the same disease eating away at everything else. Monolithic in comparison, its roof seemed mostly intact and, at least on the side facing us, there didn't appear to be any structural deformations. Even in darkness, it emanated authority. Broken windows, massive even from our distance, glowered down at us. No boards shielded those hollow eyes. No life flickered within their gloom. A great staircase rose up to it, weeds and waving grass forming an almost impenetrable barrier. Behind them, we glimpsed a gaping maw. At some point in its past, the grand doorway had been ripped from its hinges, leaving whatever the place was open to the elements. In truth, it didn't look as phased by the brutality as it should. Only a fool would want to venture inside. I think we should go back to the car, Kara said. She moved next to me and, without either of us registering it until afterward, slid her hand into mine. I think I know what that place is, I murmured. Miranda asked, peering through her pain into my tired face. Elaborate. Todd's first letter, not the ones I read in the car, but the first one to me, made it seem like the town he met mom, or the nurse as he called her, was a bit more affluent. She worked at the local hospital. What if the local hospital wasn't what we think of back home? What if... What if we're looking at the local hospital? Understanding started dawning on me. In school, you're taught to read between the lines. When studying literature, you learn the importance of what's not said, of what's left out, as well as the overt meaning. I think this place grew up around a mental asylum. And maybe, maybe the killer that he mentioned in his story, maybe Todd himself escaped from here. Let's not jump to any conclusions just yet. Scott scanned our faces, 
then turned back towards the building. No jumping, but, well, that seems the place to start. I motioned to the other ramshackle buildings, most missing large sections of their roofs, others merging with various flora. There's also something else to think about. Where are the people who erected that monstrosity? Kara jabbed a thumb towards the grotesque roadblock as she seemingly read my mind. Not to mention that man who almost killed us. From what he said, there's probably people hiding around here somewhere, Scott added. His fingers wound around the gun even tighter, as if by doing so, it could offer more protection. His collectedness cracked and, maybe for the first time, I really wondered how much more he, let alone any of us, could take. We were normal kids not too long ago. Average guys, drifting in different directions. We each had our own reasons for the choices we made. And I think, though I'm ashamed to admit it, a time might have come when our friendship couldn't fill the gap our choices had created. But death and sorrow ultimately forced people towards higher clarity. He remained my best friend, and as he was neck deep in the shit with me, I felt fairly confident I was his. Even so, friendship shouldn't entail what we had gone through the last 72 hours. Hating myself, I said, we can't turn back now. Miranda's hurt really bad and we've come this far already. If we give up now, what's the point? The bad guys will win. <laughs> Newsflash, brother. The bad guys already won. His laugh sounded pitiful and scornful at the same time, but he didn't retreat to the path. Instead, he turned to Miranda and asked, You're the hurt one. It's your call whether we press on or bounce. We keep going. Miranda, we keep going. She firmly repeated, Even if it kills you? Tears stained Scott's cheeks as he stood over the smaller woman. Some things are worth the price. Throwing up his hands in disgust, Scott stalked away. Miranda moved closer to Kara, so her next words wouldn't carry through the desolate square. She motioned and, with a fleeting glance towards me, Kara released my hand and walked towards our leader. Do you remember what you said earlier? When the younger woman shook her head no, Miranda continued. You spoke of a nameless thing that once was one, but now many. You spoke of a force outside God's domain, outside nature's power. Do you remember? I... I... Kara clutched her head as she spoke. The words seemingly hammered spikes into her temples, nearly forcing the artist to her knees. She swooned, and I rushed to catch her. However, she maintained her balance and waved me off before I could reach her. I think so. Is this where we will find the nameless thing? I don't know. Think, girl. Our very souls might depend on it. Miranda gripped her elbow and dragged Kara's arm down. Pressing her face forward, she looked into the younger woman's face with a mixture of command and tenderness. Bulbous tears formed on Kara's cheeks as she vainly struggled to free her arm. 
Calm. Be calm. Is this the place? Guys! Scott called. The higher pitch to his voice drew my attention from the women's conversation. He wasn't looking at us. Rather, he pointed towards one of the more run-down buildings nearby. Nervously, I jogged towards him, feeling my heart hammer a maddening melody in my chest. What's wrong? I saw something! He hissed, pointing towards the building's drooping entranceway. You got your cell on you? Yeah, why? Aim the flashlight over there, he commanded. That a good idea? Probably not, but I know I saw something move. Now, I wholeheartedly believe Scott saw something. More, I suspected he had seen someone lurking in the deep dark. However, fear goes a long way in convincing us what we know for truth ain't so. That being said, are you sure it wasn't a deer? Nah, for fuck's sake, Danny, you know it wasn't a deer. If it had been, we'd have seen the damn thing mounted on one of those branches behind us. He snapped. Now shine the light over there. Cell phones are a lovely thing. Even when your reception is shit, they still have some pretty nifty features. Case in point, the flashlight. While a military-grade torch would have been preferable, the beam from my portable phone offered significantly more illumination than the pale starlight. Considerably chastened, I plucked the device from my rear pocket and activated the flashlight app. While it offered some light, I needed to move closer for significant clarity. I really didn't want to do that. You can't always get what you want. Damn thing's no good, I grumbled. Now, with my device's shortcomings, my skin started prickling. Whether real or dredged up from my imagination, unseen eyes watched the two of us hover, almost touching, in the wet grass. We should rejoin the others, man. I don't think any of us should move where the others won't be able to see. Scott frowned, but nodded agreement. However, his eyes fixed on the dim opening as we carefully retreated. Pointless as it was, I kept my phone pointed outward, as if somehow the beam would intensify enough to fend off the night. Step by step, we returned the way we came, until finally, thankfully, we were four again. I saw movement. The women exchanged curious, frightened glances with me, but waited for Scott to elaborate. Knowing what he had say, I wondered what Kara revealed when I moved beyond earshot. When he didn't elaborate, they peered expectantly towards me. What could I say? While I believed him, and certainly since we were being watched, I hadn't actually seen anything. So, instead of building on his statement, I said, Let's go to the big building. Miranda, can you move quickly? Yes. Her pallor worried me even as I admired her determination. She meant to push herself beyond any breaking point, beyond the line where medication, stitches, and clean bandages could offer salvation. I was, essentially, the death of her. As if tuned into my mental frequency, she added, This is not your fault, Danny. Now go. We will follow your lead. I trust you, Kara whispered. 
She reached for my hand again and, needing its comfort, I didn't pull away. Where I'd seen fragile beauty earlier, with my perception tainted by fear and distrust, I beheld sturdy resolve. Her limbs unconsciously trembled with terror. Hey, I couldn't judge her, as I pretty much shared the same feeling, and if you just glanced at her, you might dismiss her as the sexy first or second victim in a horror movie. This artist, this woman I jumped into a damn river to save. She was here. I'm a bit slow, so was only now grasping the significance. I breathed deeply, squeezed her hand, and started towards the distant building. Scott fell into step behind me, with Miranda attempting to match pace beside him. Only two of us had cells, Kara and myself, so we used our flashlights to offer a painfully weak spear of light. Scott kept the gun raised, his eyes darting towards every shadowy structure every few steps. There was something there. He grumbled as we reached, then passed the first building. More for his sake than desire to reveal anything, I pointed my cell towards the one-story structure. Behind strangling vines and weather-stained brick, I barely made out enough lettering to guess what it had once been. G-A-R-D-H-S-E A guardhouse? I hesitated, causing my buddy to tumble into me. They got it wrong. Who got it wrong? Kara asked, joining her light with mine. Your mom. Todd. Hell, we got it wrong. I lowered my arm, letting the yellowish beam bathe our legs. I started walking again, forcing the others to keep moving before I elaborated. This isn't a town. It's either a prison or a psychiatric hospital. I think they used to call those things asylums or sanitariums. I don't believe this place is the happy, we're gonna get you all better kind either. Oh my god. I don't think God's been here for a long time. Scott's voice held a somber, almost defeated timber. A chilly breeze forced its way between us. Its touch tapped wet fingers over our spines, spreading goosebumps over clammy skin. Violent shivers gripped me with such force, I nearly dropped my phone. Clouds swam overhead, shrouding what little starlight poked through. Sweat trickled down my brow, and my bladder seized to the point I nearly urinated down my leg. The ambience encouraged imagination to succumb to feverish delusions. Naturally, as with any good scary story, this was when we heard footsteps. What was that? Move! Miranda hissed. We need to get out of the open. Our destination remained several hundred yards away. Another taller building jutted from the dirt halfway there and off toward Hoplin's Cove's right-hand side. It didn't seem as desiccated as the guardhouse, but the obsidian night hindered my ability to properly gauge the damage. Moreover, the footsteps hadn't stopped. Sometimes seeming ahead, sometimes behind. We needed to get to safety if such a thing existed in this place. Without discussing it, 
we moved as one towards the building, me out front, Scott in the rear, covering us with the revolver. <sighs> Things turned bad very quickly. An inhuman roar shattered the preternatural stillness. All other sounds, the footsteps, our labored breathing, the rustling wind, it all drowned in the roar's intensity. One of us screamed. We shoved each other forward, unwilling to pull ahead or fall behind, lest someone fall prey to whatever came for us. Another louder roar rumbled through the night, answering the first, closer and at our backs. I did something stupid. I looked over my shoulder. This time, I knew the scream belonged to me. Not one, not two, six creatures stalked towards us. Vaguely humanoid, they moved with a gorilla-like fluidity, sometimes moving on two feet, sometimes using their hands to propel forward. I'd seen their kind twice, once in a mysterious video where my father had been killed. In that, the monster vaguely resembled gnarled trees. The other, when I saw Ta's true form, after we crashed through the storefront back home. When the ghost, or ghosts, prevented the serpentine monstrosity from claiming me. God help me, this wasn't fucking real. Their bodies mimicked twisted, blighted trees. Their corded muscles separated from the humid air by only the barest skin. Their heads didn't have a human's roundness. Those angular aberrations twisted like their frames, but also exhibited a snake's unyielding desire to consume. Glowing ravenous eyes held a serpent's slitted pupils, as well as its horrifyingly sharp fangs. What the absolute fuck? Scott screamed as he stumbled into a half turn. Falling to one knee, he loosed a terrified grunt. Get up, man! I shrieked. One of the creatures snarled at us. Then, it smiled. It fucking smiled at us. I reached down and yanked my friend to his feet. The gun had slipped from his fingers when he fell, so I reached down to pluck it from the dirt. Up until this point, I hadn't held a firearm, at least not with any intention to use it. You can learn a lot from the internet, and as scared as I was, I had no intention on dying. I pressed the hammer and aimed towards the monsters. Stay back! Danny! Miranda shouted. Give me the gun! Barely noticing her command, I turned my head, sluggishly dazed, to regard her. Now at my side, she held out a small hand for the firearm. I saw fresh blood staining her front. When I lifted my eyes to meet hers, understanding passed between us. No! I whimpered. Please, let me do this one last thing. But! The creature steadily closed the gap. Tears blurred my vision as I struggled to hold on to what? I didn't have anything to hold on to anymore. Crying, 
I handed my friend, my white knight, her weapon. Now run, she whispered. So we did. With only one chance, we made a mad dash towards the asylum. Then, Miranda started firing. One shot, followed by an enraged scream and bloodthirsty snarls. A second shot, repeat snarls and shrieks. A third, a fourth. We closed in on the brick building. With only a dozen or two yards left to go, Miranda started screaming. I did not stop running as I foolishly looked over my shoulder. I did not stop as I watched them circle her, four as she had managed to put down two and rush into her. I did not stop as they bit into her and... Oh, God, and pulled her apart. God help us. I did not stop as she died. It stalled the bastards long enough for us to crash up weed-riddled stone steps into an unexpectedly sturdy hardwood door. It's amazing what you process in the midst of tragedy. Considering the squalor at our backs, the relatively unblemished portal seemed quizzically out of place. Its old-fashioned iron handle lacked the rust you would expect. And again, in the maddening way the mind compartmentalizes during horrific moments, I detected what appeared to be ornate figures etched into the wood, though panic and the night prevented me from fully making out their designs. I kind of expected we'd find the damn thing locked. Scott and Kara fought to get the handle twisted. Whether bad luck or sweaty palms, they failed with the first two attempts. I numbly watched the creatures finish with, with their gruesome task. It ended all too swiftly, and as my friends fumbled with the door, those hateful monstrosities turned their attentions back to us. Viscous saliva and gore dribbled from their sneering mouths. Too many teeth stalked towards us. Guys, my voice was barely audible. My bladder finally surrendered. Hot, stinking urine spread across my crotch and wove ungraciously down my leg. Some other time, I would have felt shame. Right then, pissing myself really held an abstract disturbance, less important than the impending death that prowled increasingly closer. They're coming. Finally, the door swung open. The same instant, the creatures bounded towards us. Then, Scott yanked me backwards through the slightly open doorway. Kara barely had time to close the door as the four monsters impacted on the other side. It rocked on its hinges, but held. Quickly, she slid a large arm-length metal rod across the door. The locking mechanism fell into place barring the creatures from easily getting inside. I bent forward, clutching my knees as I fought for breath. As clawed fists beat the wooden exterior, my friends did the same. 
What are those things? Kara asked, more to feel the pregnant silence than with expectation of any real answer. Moran is dead. She... They got her. All I could say, now that we were in relative safety, if only for the moment. Yeah. What do we do now? Scott asked. When Kara didn't answer, I looked up to see him peering, red-eyed and bewildered, at me. Danny, tell... Tell me what we do now, brother. I straightened and reached into my pockets. First, I drew out the amulet and lifted the leather thong over my head. Leaving it over my shirt didn't feel right, so I lifted my collar and pushed it through so the pulsating wood could touch my skin. Strangely, it comforted me. After that, I grabbed my pocket knife and started to reach for my phone. But the cell wasn't anywhere on my person. Somewhere between giving Miranda the gun and now, I lost my phone. Kara clutched hers in one shaking hand, so at least we had one. One knife, one cell phone, and three terrified people. Not a great start. I groaned, already frustrated at how noticeably the cars were piling against us. We have to go deeper, I finally said. No use in mentioning my absent phone. They knew. They had to know. And Scott didn't typically carry a blade, so... No separating, Kara commanded, moving closer to us. Fine. I had no intention on letting walls, doors, or anything but a few feet separate us. Not after what happened to Miranda. As the creatures pounded on the door, I took a moment to investigate our immediate surroundings. If the outside world resembled a scarred battlefield where nature and, well, something else waged relentless war, the asylum's interior paid homage to the austere. A grand hallway, the kind you would see in old movies full of gothic castles or plantations stretched out around us. Massive bookcases decorated a nearby wall, their heavy wooden frames lifting towards the vaulted ceiling. On the other side of the room, an open doorway nestled between twin staircases. Again, with sloping banisters that rejoined at the top and elicited a rather specific mental image. Something bugged me. I couldn't put a finger on what it was, not at first. But then, when I moved closer to the shelves, which curiously seemed laden with darkly colored or leather-bound tomes, realization pummeled into me with such force I wasn't absolutely sure of reality anymore. No dust. No cobwebs. No broken-down, time-worn anything. I was absolutely certain when we ventured into other parts, we'd see similar things. Halfway through turning back to the others, I paused to peer at the vaulted ceiling. Does it seem brighter in here to you guys? I asked. By its outward appearance, this place shouldn't have power, and no bulbs offered any shelter from the gloom. Yet, 
my vision had barely needed to adjust to the dark when it struggled to see outside. Yeah, Scott said. He drifted further down the corridor with his head tilted thoughtfully skyward. No bulbs in the light fixtures though, at least none I can see. Such normal conversation, all things considered. Okay, up the stairs or through that door? I asked, pointing towards the opening between the staircases. Guys? Kara started. What? This is too easy. And clean. Shouldn't this place look like, well, a massive shithole? I nodded. Yeah. Do you think... Do you think Polk wasn't referring to the creatures outside when he said we'd prefer dealing with him? Huh. <laughs> How badly do you want answers, brother? Scott shot a frank stare my way. If we don't get answers, then what's the point to any of this? Why come here? If we don't get answers, Miranda died for nothing. Rage flared, and I suddenly wanted to punch my friend. I even stepped towards him, raising my fist with foolish intention to play out the farce. Just as quickly, my temper cooled deflating me, diminishing me. I need them, I whispered. He appeared to understand. Scott's frown softened until it melted away. Sorrow vied for purchase, causing his face to contort. Then, his stoic demeanor returned, punctuated by a solemn nod. Through the door, let's find those answers. We fell into line beside each other, my friends on either side of me. Had we taken the time, we might have noticed how our steps matched. Somehow, with one of our number fallen, some bastardized symmetry had been found. I combated a strong urge to cry as more threads unwound around my mind, as images of Miranda's final moments passed through my mind. This monstrous mental picture show, it held me in hellish rapture. Once we passed through the wide doorway, the temperature plummeted about 10 degrees. Without realizing it, we had crossed into a whole new world. Or, perhaps, it was more likely we had pulled the mask away and were now starting to see the building's true face. The outer corridor had been grand, impressive even, but that veneer swiftly vanished. The path narrowed to a comparatively narrow hallway. We weren't quite able to walk side by side, so we resorted to walking in a triangle formation, with me leading the way. Periodically, we'd pass a doorway. Always closed, they also bore the foyer's pristine nature. Despite all I had seen, the absence of grime completely unnerved me. It's like the difference between a black and white void. The black void draws up words like abyss, obsidian, stygian, and you expect something's lurking in there. But the white void? You don't know what to expect. It's nothingness, or the illusion of it. So when something pops out of the white void, it's so much worse. 
The cleanness resembled the white void in this way, harder to process and, to me, infinitely scarier. The hallway ended after a few hundred feet. At first, it seemed like we had reached a dead end. However, when we drew closer, maybe 20 paces off, I noted another passage cutting left. We passed two closed doors, one to either side, and staggered so they weren't adjacent to each other before reaching the turn. My breath hitched when I realized the corridor didn't just turn left, it also went right, like a T-bone. Did you guys notice that? I asked, jabbing my fist towards the right-hand passageway. Only just now, Kara answered. Scott nodded in agreement. I don't like this place. It's unnatural. That's when the whispering started. We couldn't make out what they were saying at first. Just an ominous, constant drone. Almost like chanting, honestly. Our singular certainty was this. They were coming from the left hallway. I craned my head in an attempt to see farther along the hall, but the shadows seemingly severed the light a few feet away. Still, the whispers filled my head, causing it to throb unpleasantly. The more it filled, the clearer they became. Come to us, children. Come to us and play. They intoned. I regarded my friends to see if they heard it too. By the way they clutched the size of their heads, I knew they did. We needed to escape them. As the whispers morphed into quiet screams in our skulls, we fled down the opposite hallway. Rushing through the winding hallways, up and down small flights of stairs, we thought we could escape them. Yet the sounds came from behind closed doors, as well as behind us. No matter how many turns we seemed to make, they were always there. The corridor started getting narrow after we had traversed the maze-like asylum. After a bit, we moved in single file, making certain to keep as close to the center of the hall as possible. So far, every door had been closed, but we didn't know if any were locked, nor did we know if we had passed openings where something terrible might lay in wait, intent on obstructing our flight. Sometimes, something would bang against the door. When this happened, at least one of us would yell, scream if you want to call it for what it was, and bounce as if struck to the hall's adjacent side. Eventually, and almost as suddenly, the voices and banging stopped. A buzzer echoed somewhere in the asylum's deepest recesses. As we stood, cloistered together, clutching the phone and knife in some vain hope they'd offer real protection, the doors started opening. As it happened, we hovered next to one, and when it smoothly glided open, I really expected our worst nightmare on the other side. This being the first room we had been able to enter since arriving, we stepped inside. Beneath the roomy shadows, 
and our minds twisted anticipation. The squarish room might have harbored fear-inducing truths. We definitely expected as much when crossing its threshold. Truth was far simpler. An office of some sort, though not modern, wide enough for the three of us to lie down with our arms fanned out and still have some room, filled with a small workstation, not topped with the monitors and paraphernalia you would find on modern desks. A small shelving unit squatted against one wall, a long dead clock mounted above it, and a large newspaper clipping was framed next to it. I walked towards these. When I reached the clipping, I read out loud, Hoplins Cove Asylum opened its doors thanks to generous donation. Hey, come here. I waited for them to join me before continuing. Hey, someone better guard the door, Scott said. My skin keeps crawling, like someone's tracing their fingers up and down my arms. We're being toyed with, Kara added, as she joined me at the clipping. Right. Hey, Danny, mind if I hold that knife a bit? I think I feel safer if I could fight back if someone tries to jump me. We moved towards each other, and despite feeling a bit helpless without it, I handed my pocket knife to him. Scott returned to the open doorway, making sure he could see in either direction, and I rejoined Kara. Picking up where I left off, I read, Hoplins Cove Sanitarium received significant donation from the Whitecrest Foundation, paving the way for Joseph Hoplins' dream to see fruition. Sources close to the reclusive philanthropist claim the mountain sanctuary is to be a state-of-the-art facility that will treat the latest waves of psychiatric and physical ailments. When asked why he chose such a secluded location for his sanitarium, Hoplin is reported to say, Why, to address their demons, child. Some horrors are best kept from our fair cities, after all. This will be a fine place for them, a real fine place. Not much is currently known about the equally mysterious Whitecrest Foundation. The organization has been linked to several high-profile projects, including several talkies and the Wellgard building in Chicago. Kara and I exchanged looks. She asked, Do you know anything about the Whitecrest Foundation? Or, why haven't we heard anything about Joseph Hoplin? You'd think something like this would generate more news, and wouldn't... We should have been able to find out about this place with a simple internet search. Something bad must have happened here, I answered. And powerful folks can hide a lot when they want to. The article was written September 16th of 1931. That's before internet, cell phones. I stared at the faded image accompanying the article. A balding middle-aged man stood next to an empty plot probably the land we stood on now, and smiled into the camera. His pencil mustache dangled over a too-wide mouth. There wasn't anything friendly in the smile, only a condescending malice and an expression that failed in its attempt to reach his eyes. He gave me the creeps. Frowning, Kara moved over to the desk and started to rummage around its narrow drawers. They slid out easily enough, but didn't yield anything worthwhile. When she finished, grunting with dissatisfaction, 
she forcefully slammed them shut. I winced when they impacted with a loud, echoing bang. Still, I kept my mouth shut, not intending to add to the noise and draw attention to our location. There's nothing here, Danny. Let's go. Seconds later, we were out in the hall again. With Scott leading the way, we continued on the way we'd been heading prior to the strange buzzer. We passed numerous open doorways. Behind some, we found rooms much like the first, while others were obviously patient rooms. All curious, but ultimately unable to answer my questions. We kept peering over our shoulders, expecting someone or something every time. I think the silence, the not knowing what to expect, made things worse than they might have otherwise been. Even so, we kept moving and adding to our desperation. I don't know how long this went on. We had fallen into silence once more. Whether fear, tiredness, or sheer frustration, I don't know. It simply didn't seem smart to talk. The whispers hadn't returned, and, thankfully, the creatures hadn't found a way inside yet. Or, we were just so damn lost, they hadn't found us yet. I wanted to give up, but the knowledge there wasn't an obvious way out kept that desire temporarily abated. Hopelessness rooted within me, made my movement sluggish until it bordered lethargy. Despair nearly overtook me when we finally stumbled across a nursing station. At this point, I couldn't tell you what floor we were on and where we were in relation to the front door. Some sections had the genteel vibe of the main entrance, while others had the simplistic aesthetic one might expect in a private hospital for what I'd eventually deduced the more well-to-do clientele. This still didn't explain why the guardhouse existed, but I guess someone had to keep strangers out, or the patients in. Anyway, like I said, we finally found a nursing station. Unlike many of the rooms we had explored, this one appeared more modern, at least more modern than some of the mid-20th century decor we'd seen throughout the asylum. Each shelf was heavily laden with bins, old towels, and miscellaneous medical gear. Several gurneys were shoved against one wall, next to three shoulder-high filing cabinets. It'd be too easy for us to find anything worthwhile in those, so I initially ignored them. Instead, I moved around the counter, where a nurse presumably sat during her shift. A small cushioned chair offered a chance for me to get off my feet while I searched the drawers and countertop. I'm tired, I grumbled, sliding down into the seat with a satisfying plop. We're all tired, murmured Scott from his place at the entrance. I got a feeling we're gonna get a whole lot more tired before we get out this mess. If we get out this mess, Kara added. Not helpful, I groused as I adjusted the chair so I could get my legs comfortable. Scott grunted, but said no more. Kara moved to the filing cabinets and started opening drawers. 
by the various racks on the wide counter and the open space in front of my knees, I assumed the surface also served as a working desk. Curiously, I noticed several thick manila files jutting from one wire rack. Half-used pencils, paper clips, tape, and other office junk provided the first signs of real disarray I'd seen since we had arrived. Have either of you noticed how weirdly clean this building is? Like, when you look at it from the outside, the place looks like it could topple in on itself at any moment, but no dust, no mice. It's almost like someone staged the building, staged it for us. A sick feeling flowered up inside me. I didn't care for the thought anyone would do something like that. But as I said these things, I knew this wasn't exactly it. Partly, but not all of what bothered me. It feels like... evil. Like haunted house meets demons from hell meets serial killers evil. I want answers. I do. But I'm starting to think we're being toyed with. I don't know how, but I think that's right. It's like whatever those creatures outside were, they were just guard dogs. The barricade with all those dead animals? Maybe that's like an electric fence at a prison. Maybe the creatures were the next step. <sighs> I'm scared. Us too. Scott offered her a kind smile. In another life, that might have soothed her, or even stole her heart. Though it did neither of those things, she bobbed her head and returned to sifting through the file cabinets. I missed the days where Todd Wilkinson was my only reason to be afraid. As I thought this, the wooden amulet thrummed against my breast, sending reassuring waves through me. Strange that I needed its magic to provide the pithy comfort I could scrounge up. But when you're wandering hell, you take what little holiness you can stumble over. I leaned over and plucked a file. A faded brown smudge blotted out the name typed on the white label. But when I opened it, I immediately knew I'd find something we had come looking for. Clearing off a space so I could lay the file down, I called for Kara to bring her phone over so we could use the flashlight. Holy shit! I gasped when the pale glow illuminated the single demographics page. I didn't immediately recognize the name. It was the one Anne called him. Conrad Brett, but I recognized the face all right. That's him. That's the motherfucker who killed my family. I rifled through the pages until I stumbled onto a section with doctor's notes. I quickly poured through these until I found the one I knew I'd come all this way for. I fell back in my seat and turned as a wave of nausea assailed me. What's wrong? Scott asked, craning his neck so he could see us. Read that, I mumbled, pointing to the open page, out loud. Slowly, Kara started to read. December 12, 1998. Longtime patient, CB, 
displays unhealthy fixation on new nurse, has been overheard making false statements to her, such as how he came to reside in this facility. I have discussed with patient about the inappropriateness of such behavior. Patient response is recorded as follows. Only the damned come here, doctor. You know this. We are all monsters. She is just part of the family. I am recommending patient be placed under observation for the next two nights. She paused. Confusion played across her face. Keep going. December 13th, 1998. Patient CB has responded well to testing. He is showing signs of renewed strength and enhanced metabolism. His fixation on the nurse continues to prove troubling. Orderlies removed him from staff break room as he attempted to engage nurse while on her break. He said, I just want to take her out for coffee, doc. That is not so bad, is it? Only coffee. We'll recommend nurse is assigned to another wing as patient grows increasingly agitated due to her presence. December 14, 1998. Patient CB escaped the facility but was found wandering back some hours later. It is unclear where he went. Side note, nurse has placed her resignation. She did not cite reasons. It is important to note, as patient seems in a jovial mood despite... Oh, oh my god. Danny? Is, is this saying what I think it's saying? Yeah, I think it is. But it's still not completely jiving with the letters. Was Todd really a patient at this facility? What had happened in the intervening years to lead to monsters outside and madness within? See if there's something else. Something that'll help us. Something useful for fucking once. She lifted the file towards her face. As she did, a sheet of paper slipped out and fell to the floor. With a grunt, I reached down and plucked it from the tile floor. A note, written in tiny, faintly familiar script. I held it to my face and started to read. My name is Char- oh, Charlie Preston. Oh my god, it's my dad! What, what the ever-loving fuck? My name is Charlie Preston. If you're reading this, I'm so goddamn sorry. I came here for answers concerning my family. My wife, Nadia, used to work here. She is the nurse this monster seemed obsessed with. In her sleep, my wife moans about this place. She screams a name, Conrad, on her worst nights. There is a man who has been hanging around. A man new to our town who has ingratiated himself within our circles. He watches her with a predatory gaze that I do not like. Anyway, a few nights ago, she started talking in her sleep, but not like normal. This time, I thought she was wide awake. Strange, huh? 
She said where I could find this place. She said there were evil things here that the doctors lied about. God, even writing it makes me sick to my stomach. Joseph Hopland was an evil man. He drew evil men to this place and invited forces he shouldn't have. I have to get out before Conrad hurts my wife. I have to get back there to protect my boys. If you're reading this, you should know that they shut this place down right before the turn of the century. Something killed all the staff. If you're reading this, you have a reason you're here. I hope you get out before it kills you too. I looked at Kara, who matched my own bewildered, wide-eyed expression. We were turning towards Scott when someone said, Hello, children. Welcome to my sanitarium. This has been a Black and Grim production. The Black and Grim podcast is an original horror fiction production and cannot be reproduced without written consent from the creators. The author, Grim, owns all rights to the story. Reproduction or use without written consent from the author is strictly prohibited. Thank you for joining us for episode 9 of... Danny's River. Well, that was intense, eh? I wonder what's in store for next time. Hmm? Grim? Ugh. Damn it, man. Are you... Are you eating that body?